Now this is an absolutely fantastic podcast and before we even got started and, and part of the reason why I do this podcast and started One Whole Life Media is to help my own mental health and before we even got started. I think uh, the topic of athletes mental health from the Tokyo Olympics would be huge. Perfect. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't know if you wanted to talk on that. I didn't know if you were sick of talking about any of that yet. <laughs> so, so. No, it's, okay. I think it was, I think it was kind of a gift to all of us. I, I agree. Was, I, yeah. I don't know why I had it in my head that I was like, man, I, I, I don't know if you, you just did so many articles within talks with so many different people. I, I, yeah, I should have just asked you first, but I was almost trying to steer clear. You were making up a not story. Not you? Yep, that's how it goes, man. That's why I'm doing this whole thing to challenge my thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Andrews politely showed me that I was off path. I, I was I was off the the road I needed to be on, and he put me back on it <laughs> ever so gently and ever so slightly. And I've been thinking about that ever since, and it just makes me laugh because every podcast we've had, they have said you need help. It's hard if not almost impossible to do this by yourself. You need a guide. You need someone to, to point out when you're bouncing into the walls or if you're on the right path, and Dr. Andrews did that for me. Now, before we get rolling into this thing, I would like to say I reached out to him as a sports psychologist, as someone to help with pole vaulters, with Team Hoot. He has worked with Olympic-level pole vaulters. He has worked with Olympic gymnasts, trampolinists. Think of giant organizations in big sports, and he's worked with all of them. Uh, Simone Biles, if I'm name dropping, he's worked with Simone Biles. And if you're not in sports, here's here's the big takeaway I took from this, is that the tools you learn in sports, mental health-wise, are things you use in everyday life. And I've learned this from myself being in mental health institutes, institutions, being in mental health hospitals, getting help myself and going, oh wait, I can apply mindfulness techniques to sports. And after listening to this, he's like, no, you can use sports psychology techniques in everyday life because sports psychology, child psychology, psychology, it's all just psychology. Sponsor-wise, I am still my own sponsor, so head over to onewholelifemedia.com and help support what I'm doing here because I think it's fantastic. Also, Robert Andrews has this fantastic book, The Champion's Mental Edge. It's something I wish I had when I was still competing and Gosh, I, I keep going through it, and as I said already, I'm using some of the tips in here in my everyday life, which has been spectacular. I, I love it. It's great. So, without further ado, the amazing, the wonderful, the spectacular, Robert Andrews. Confucius said we have two lives, and the second begins when we realize that we only have one. We're all given one whole life. And when we find and break the barriers that are preventing us from living fully, we have an audacious attempt to improve mental health. One Whole Life with Sean Francis. Let's let's start with the uh, the, the Olympics and um and uh it, it just seemed like the door finally got kicked open in mental health because of the Simone Biles thing. And then even like a few weeks before that, I forgot the tennis player's name, but the tennis player was talking about similar mental health. I never health can, issues. Naomi Osaka or something like I never can remember her name. I wasn't I even going to try and pronounce it. I was going to let you go yeah. for it. <laughs> but but yeah, so from, from your perspective as a mental health expert, uh, especially in sports psychology, how do, how do you see the narrative changing because of what happened? Um, I see it changing for the better big time. Uh, and 
you know, it's isn't it, isn't it crazy how Simone was supposed to go to the Olympics and win six gold medals. And instead it was like, no, like in the, the higher calling, the higher purpose of things, you were supposed to go there and struggle on a universal level for everyone to see and go public with it and take care of yourself and, and own personal responsibility. And I just love how things like that work out, you know, the yeah. way she handled it and this class and the dignity and how she handled the haters. And she's like, it's not safe. I'm going to take care of myself. I think it's just wonderful. And then that gave other athletes permission to do that too. We had a, uh, a member, I think she was, she ran the 400 meter hurdles for the USA. And she was talking about when she made the team at trial, she was crying. And she said, just a few years ago, I didn't want to be here. Yeah. You know, which I don't know if that meant she was suicidal or she was just severely depressed or what that meant. I didn't want to run track anymore. I don't know what that meant. But the fact that she was so emotional about making the team and coming from where she was to here, we had the tennis player, uh, we had Simone Manuel, the swimmer, talked about some of her struggles and stresses. So it's right there for all of us. And, and I think we in the world of sports took this and just made a quantum leap forward. And yeah. I think it's just fabulous. I think it's wonderful. I, I like the most frustrating part for me was reading a lot of the comments behind it, you know, and with any I think change people, there's always kickback. Like mm -hmm. how, how would you talk to somebody who's like, wow, oh, she quit on her team. She shouldn't have even been, you know, she shouldn't have even tried if she, if she was going to let the United States down like that kind of a situation. Well, we have a, a assistant attorney general here in Texas that said that exact thing on a tweet. And uh, my mom, my, my uh, uh, wife laughs at me because I, uh, I call our governor's office and I call our senators. And I called this guy's office and I said, tell him he needs to educate himself on mental health. She's not a quitter. She didn't let her team down. She's actually taking care of herself. And so I, and he took the tweet down very quickly because me and a whole lot of other people held him into account on such an idiotic, stupid, yeah. stupid comment, you know? So people don't know. And there's that old school that, uh, Oh, if you're, like, how do I explain it? It's like, I think what it's done is it's made it, it's made it okay to struggle. Everybody thought that if you struggled, you were mentally ill, you had severe mental illness. Yeah. If you're anxiety, anxious or depressed, well, it's, it's, that's not always the case. There is mental illness, but just because you're anxious or depressed doesn't mean you're mentally ill. And so I think if people will take the time to read and educate and, and, and research and talk, they'll see that, wow, most of us go through phases in our lives like that where we're anxious or lonely or depressed or suffering mentally, emotionally, psychologically in some ways. And so we had these brave athletes go, I'm at the Olympic Games, the biggest stage in sports, and I'm suffering and I'm struggling and here it is. And for those people who mock them and make fun of them, you know, I always say karma is a big thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I believe in karma. I really do. And I don't wish any will on ill will on anyone, but a lot of times that karma circles back and they're going, wow, I wish I would have had more empathy. And I think that, I think that's one of the big things that was missing in this whole with people like that was empathy and compassion. Yeah. was missing. And, and that's kind of a, at the epicenter of our whole society right now is a lack of empathy and compassion, no matter what's going on. So I think 
I think 99% of the people were like, good for her. Yeah. Good for them. Yeah. Do you agree with that? I do. Um, I, I like that you were talking about empathy and I think about empathy a lot where it's hard to have it unless you know what they're going through in some way. I, like I, my mom had a, or has a friend where she didn't under, I was diagnosed with depression when I was 10. So like, it's just been a part of my life forever, which is why I'm doing this thing. Right. But, uh, mm-hmm. she didn't understand. She thought I was just being, you know, a bad kid, you know, re reacting out, out of things. And then 10, I think it was 10 or 15 years later, she had a child and had postpartum depression and actually experienced what depression was like. Yeah. And they became friends again because she's called and apologized. Yeah. that So that's kind of like that, that karma yeah. thing. Right. But yeah. unless you've experienced it or at least acknowledge that, you know, depression is on this, not just depression, but mental health is a spectrum where, mm-hmm. And if you don't take care of it, it seems to always get worse, right? <laughs> or from, from well, my you experience. You try to push it down. It, you know, it mushrooms, it comes up somewhere else and yeah. it's usually worse. Yeah, right. So, yeah, and you know, you, I know, well, I was going to say, you've been very vocal about your, your issues and struggles and things like that. And I, I've always admired that about you. You know, I, I, we're Facebook friends and I yeah. read and I go, God, what a courageous guy, you know? Yep. It's impressive. Yeah, maybe. It doesn't always feel, it's, yeah, I guess courageous what Brene Brown says, courageous Brene is Brown, scary, right? Yeah. 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 It's scary, but it's courageous. It's, yeah. I, I'm trying to like rewire the way courageous is in my head. Cause the way I grew up thinking about it is completely different than I do now. But yeah, it's a, it, for me, it always came from, I like when I was in the mental health hospital, uh, like in 2012, I remember sitting in a group of people who all had some kind of mental health issues. And it was the first time I felt like relief that, oh my gosh, there's other people like me out there. They were saying the same things, the same thoughts, and they were, we were all in the same environment. And nothing had to happen. Like I wasn't treated yet. You know, it was day one. And I just was like, oh, I'm not the only one. So that kind of thought and idea has kind of pushed me to talk about it. And when I did, the first time I talked about it was in 2013 or 14, I can't remember, in a vlog. And I posted the vlog and didn't watch the comments for like three days, just terrified of what people were going to say. And then when I opened it up, there was just like, I have it too. Here, here's what I've been wow. dealing with. And it's the same reaction or um, emotions and feelings that I had when I was in that group was, wow, there are other people. And when we can you know, show the skeletons in our closet, it allows others to let their skeletons out and then you know, hopefully they dissipate once. Yeah. You give them permission. Yeah. And then there's a connection through that, you know? And again, I think that's, that's the the large majority of people. And then there's others that, you know, will shame ridicule. And, you know, it's so easy for people to just type on a keyboard these days. And (laughs) people have said things to me on social media, they would never say to my face, you know, yeah. And I've probably done that too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, I got off of Facebook for about, I think I've been on once in the last two months. I just had enough of it and feel better. Well, well actually I feel, I feel a lot better. I'm happy I caught you on Facebook when I sent you that message. Then. <laughs> <laughs> I would have missed you. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know. I've, sometimes I feel like I trap myself in a corner creating, you know, all these things through social media, it's, but mm-hmm. I'm trying to see it as more as a, gift, you know, in, in that aspect and trying to not let well, that I, other side kind of attack you. Well, your mission and your purpose is I wouldn't think too many people would be coming at you with what you're putting out, you know? Yeah. You'd be surprised every once in a while. Like, yeah, you say like, I, I said shit in a word in a vlog once, you know, and 
you know, I, like I cuss. That's just been kind of who I am for a while. And no matter what I said and the rest of it, I just attacked and, you know, and it, it was, it was like, it was hard because there was, at the time I was creating these free videos for pole vaulters to try and help them tag along and figure out the event. And then it was like, and that one comment, like <laughs> it stung a lot. Cause you're like, well, kind of, and it felt kind of like, uh, what am I doing this for? And you start kind of playing these games, but it it's hard because growing up, I've always heard you have to have a thick skin, right? You have to, you know, not worry about those, whatever people say, let it bounce off you, but it does affect you, you know? It, and so it's been hard and I figured it out, like how to navigate that when someone just doesn't agree with what you have to say or doesn't like the way you're presenting it, you know? And, but yeah, you, you do. I don't think you can escape it ever because someone's going to disagree, especially on the internet when, you know, if you're in a town of a thousand people, you got a thousand people who could attack you. But when you have the internet, <laughs> you know, anyone can find you and, you know, and you're more likely to have people who don't agree with what you're saying. So do you think it can be worse for men because, you know, we're stigmatized that you, you got to suck it up and you got to be stoic and you can't show emotion or vulnerability, or if you do show emotion, you can show anger, but you know, nothing else. And so do you think sometimes we have a harder time with it? Uh, emotions, you mean, or to the people expressing, online expressing, express, emotions? expressing emotion, being vulnerable, showing that we're struggling in some areas. You think it it's, it could be harder on men? Yeah, I don't set myself to get pounded on that one. No, <laughs> I, I do. I mean, we have. I, I think there's a societal expectation, especially in the United States. You know, I haven't traveled enough abroad to see if it's different in other places, but uh, you know, I've heard that. You know. It's, Depression is more accepted, like in countries like France, you know, where like a not depression, but more of a, you know, a, a critic, an outlook of criticism on things is kind of respected, you know. And so, like, mm -hmm. it's different oh. in different parts of the country. But I think here for sure, you know, you expect or we grew up thinking like females are emotional and guys are logical. And this is the standards and you have to fit into these boxes when, you know, the the more I'm going through it, I don't see that as true at all. We're all emotional creatures, you know? Well, I've, I've always been sensitive. And I remember uh, the first like interpersonal growth workshop I ever did. It was three days. And, and at some point in that workshop, everybody kind of broke and told their stories, you know, yeah. and there were stories of loss or grief or pain or whatever it was. And man, I held on and I held on. And it was like, 45 minutes left in the workshop and I finally broke and the workshop leader says, man, I've been watching you. It's amazing how much pain you can hold on to. And I was like, wow. But then since that point, that must've been 30 plus years ago. And since that point, it's like, I just gave myself permission to be me and be sensitive, be emotional, be caring, be vulnerable, whatever it is. I've been so much happier. How did that feel like that initial where you finally open the doors. It was such a relief. You know, it was about, I went through a pretty traumatic childhood, you know, and it was about my parents' divorce and all the craziness around that. Yeah. And, you know, in my high school, I was football team captain. I was Mr. Friendswood high school. I was most courteous, you know, everything was supposed to look right. And so I held that until that workshop. And I can still remember, you know, just finally the dam broke and I just cried and I cried and I cried for probably 20, 30 minutes, you know? Yeah. And I remember that workshop leader said, God, 
the way you can contain that, he said, I've never seen anything like it. But then, but since then, it's like, you know, I was talking to, uh, I was helping a retired college athlete yesterday and we were just talking about happy tears, you know, and how, how important it is to follow your happy tears. And she starts crying. And then I started having a happy tear, seeing her connect with the happy tear. And she's like, you're crying too. And I said, yeah. And she goes, that's pretty cool. And then she sent me a text message this morning and she goes, I had a happy tear on the way to my workout this morning. Oh, that's awesome. you know, clapping hands, you know? So it's, I just think it's a good thing. And I wish more people would give themselves permission to, to be vulnerable, to be anxious, to be sad, to be happy, you know, whatever it is. I just think it, I think it's just good for our health in general. Yeah. How do you think people start doing that? I mean, I know there's a lot of different ways, but do you suggest anything specifically? Well, for me, golly, I was 18 years old. One of my best friends, his father was a a Presbyterian minister but he was very soulful, very spiritual. And we're sitting around the dinner table. And I said, I just have this, like this yearning in me, you know, this calling. And I, you know, why am I here? You know, 18, why am I here? And so he started giving me books like uh, Wayne Dyer's Pulling Your Own Strings and Your Erroneous Zones and The Road Less Traveled. And so at 18, I started reading these books. And my 20s were all about workshops and therapy and travel about, you know, just learning about the world and myself. And I came out on the other side of it, like, God, I want to do this, you know? So I'd done, I'd done oil and gas. I'd done investment banking and all the things we're supposed to do. And I made a lot of money. And, and then one day I just got up and walked out of my job as an investment banker. And they, they accused me of being on drugs. What's wrong with you? Look at the money you're making. And I took a sabbatical and took time off and uh, went back to graduate school. Huh? When, when, was, when was that? Like, uh, I, at what age, I, I suppose, is a better question. I was 30, 31, I think. So you had a successful career of 20s up in most of your 20s, it sounded like. And then got out of college, went straight into the oil and gas business investment banking, you know, making a lot of money, successful, but not happy. It wasn't fulfilling. The oil and gas part of it was because I did title research for oil companies to go in and drill land. So I got to go out and meet people and and hear the history of their land and, and, and track a piece of land in East Texas back to the Spanish land grant, you know, and I love that part of it. Oil and gas, I mean, uh, investment banking, not so much, but it's really interesting how I use all the tools from those careers in my business now, yeah. you know, and, and, and helping an athlete through their suffering or their struggles or a traumatic injury, like an ACL injury, I'm going back in time and finding out where they got knocked off, you know, what threw them off a little bit and then working forward again. So I'm using my oil and gas skills in my work with athletes. It's pretty crazy. You know, the investment banking skills, Help me run a business, you know, right. understanding money and markets and things like that. So it all connects in time if we if we really if we can really see it through that lens of perception. Yeah. How, so how did you know right away you wanted to work with athletes like in, in the mental health? I was side hoping of you would ask that question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was uh, I was working with a woman who's getting ready to get married. Her husband had just sold his oil company for $50 million back in 
I guess the late 80s. No, I was already in investment bank. No, yeah, I got out of graduate school. So it was in the early 90s. And I remember she's telling me about how his his kids wouldn't eat her French toast. And I felt something in me turn off. It was like, I can't do this anymore. You know? I said, really hate French toast, right? <laughs> I like French toast. No, I'm like, gosh, there's bigger world problems than kids not eating French toast, right? <laughs> right. But, yeah. but I felt something click off in me. And uh, <clears throat> so I said, uh, one, one Monday, I opened up my book for the, I had five appointments that day and I checked my messages. I had three cancellations. So it's like, you know, God, the universe, you know, said, okay, can't do it anymore. There you go. And so, so Sean, I got scared and I hit my hand on the bar where I keep my car keys and wallet. And I said, okay, God, if this isn't it, what do you want me to do? You know, 24 hours later, I'm sitting on a restaurant on Shepherd Drive, on Durham Drive here in Houston with my wife. We're sitting outside. And all of a sudden, I started crying. And she goes, what is it? And I said, I know what I'm supposed to do next. And she says, what is it? And I said, I'm supposed to take all my research from graduate school and all my training in EMDR and eidetic imagery and my work with trauma survivors. And I'm supposed to help injured athletes overcome the psychological impact of their injuries. And she said, where did you get that? And I said, it's a God thing, man. It was just so clear. And so I started advertising that I work with injured athletes. And before you know it, I've got this practice and I'm seeing ACL injuries and broken ankles and Tommy John surgery and concussions and broken collarbones and pole vaulters where the pole breaks or they tear their ACL in the box, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. And then people started asking about performance and I'd done a human performance training since the nineties. So, so for 15 years, I guess, no, for five years at that point, because I started sports in 2006. So I'd been doing this human performance training. So I was able to weave a lot of the human performance concepts into that side. And then it went into teams and organizations and it just kept, it just kept on expanding, but it started at that restaurant in Houston. Wow. Huh. And I listened to it. So like I've been trying to figure out like what your intuition is and, or God, or, you know, what, what, where these messages come from? Do you have any insight in your background of, I know it gets, it gets strange because you can go like to the spiritual side and you can go to like the universe kind of watching out for you or if you're not religious at all. All the above. Yeah. yeah. All the above. You know, I grew up with a grandfather that was a Methodist minister. And so it wasn't, it wasn't cramming religion down your throat. It was more of a, oh gosh, just, and my grandparents on the other side, both taught Sunday school at the Methodist church, you know, and it, and they weren't, they weren't there. Are, do you, are you a God fearing Christian? You know, there was none of that. It was, it was God is good. And that's how I was brought up. And so I always, I've just always believed that, that when I'm taking care of myself, God of the universe takes care of me. That's always been my belief. And I can go, I can go down to the beach with my dog just to have a recharge day. And I call it fill my tank up. Yeah. And I come back and my phone rings off the wall or my emails blow up because I took care of myself. Hmm. And so I ask, okay, God, if this isn't it, what's next? And because of the way I believe in things, he answered within 24 hours yeah. and it changed my life. 
Yeah, it's, it just changed my life. It's strange. I've had moments like that too, where it almost feels like the universe is like, yeah, giving you a sign or patting you on the back. And it's <clears throat> and I I I wish I could make sense of it, but I can't. That's why I keep asking this question to everybody. It's like, well, do you, you got any more insight on this yet? It's a, this this project that I'm doing now. I've gotten a lot of those. Right when I was like, I don't know if I should even do this. You know, it's it's <clears throat> gonna be this mat. Like you start creating stories in your head. This is gonna be a massive uphill battle. This is gonna be hard. Who am I to talk about mental health? You know, <laughs> kind of those types of things. And then you get an email from a kid or a parent asking. Like these wild, like one of my, one of the craziest stories I ever had, I had a, I had a kid reach out to me through the pole vault vlog at one point. This was a few years ago. And one of his teammates committed suicide on the track team. He's like, what what do I do? I was like, well, you need to talk to, you need to go get some help, you know, talk to a counselor, tell your parents to do this. And, um, and I just tried to be there for him, you know, the best I could, some stranger on the internet, you know, that he reached out to. But at the same time, I'm kind of freaking out because I'm not trained in this and I don't want to say the wrong thing, but, and I don't know if he's getting help or anything or not. So what I did was like every day I would, I would text him in the morning or send him a message through social media, like, Hey, just checking in and see how you're doing. You know, just hoping he's, he's going to respond. You know, that's, that's the fear in my head, right? Don't know who his dad is. So I couldn't even reach out, tried really hard to find all this, all this stuff out. And I would do it again at lunch. And then I would do it again at night. And that, that went on for like a week where I did that. And then, uh, Two week or a week later, he just goes. You, you can stop sending me all these texts all the time. <laughs> it's like, all right, he must be all right. And then a week after that, his dad sent me a message, and he was like, I just want to let you know, my son's my 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 son's friend just committed suicide. He's on the pole vault team, and I have no idea what you're what to do. Like, what what do I do? Should I even talk to him? Should I get him some help? I I'm completely lost. And I know you talk about mental health. What do I do? And I was like. I hope it's okay, but I've been talking to your son for the last <laughs> last week. <laughs> you know, he reached out a, a week before you did, and he goes and he goes, "Oh, thank God!" You know, I, I had no idea what to do, and then I just tried to point him in in a direction to, to talk to mental health experts. But it was like it was another one of those signs that was kind of like, yeah, me, and I felt so fulfilled in a way that I pole vault never has for me or school or anything prior. It was like, wow, I might've made a difference in these people's mm-hmm. lives, you know? So it was it felt like the universe was like, well, you did go and, and you yeah. could have been, you know, you could have been the difference maker in a story like that or yeah. just that, that connect, 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 yeah. connect. And he's like, man, this guy cares about me. I'm going to be okay here. Yeah. And it was kind of like what we were talking about earlier with it without me talking about it, this could have been a huge nightmare, you know, and it was, and so like with Simone and all these other athletes talking about, it's just opening that door to at least start that conversation and get some help versus, as you said, push it down until it mushrooms out and explodes somewhere else. It always comes up somewhere else, usually worse. Yeah. Well, I know like before we started recording here, there's three of us in my practice and we're cranking, man. And I think, I think we had post Olympics and then we had the, the new wave of COVID kick in and then school starting up and everybody, try, everybody trying to figure out what to do with all that. And then that settled down and then season started and I'm as I'm, I'm a little bit too busy right now. I'm yeah. going to knock on wood. I don't want to, I don't want to jinx that, but right. it's, I got a lot going on and we, we do team calls every, every Thursday at 10 30 and they were like, we're busy too, but we're liking it, you know? And I think it's yeah. because, of what happened in the Olympics that people are like, 
wow, it's okay that my son or daughter, it's okay that I'm struggling a little bit. And there's people out there that, that can help. And in my practice, I've had people in that had, and this isn't a knock on people that have master's degrees in sports psychology, you know, that's valid. But right. if you're coming into my practice, you have to be a licensed mental health provider. Okay. Because it's not just about breathing and visualization, right. you know, it's about, <laughs> it's about life issues that are coming at you. You know, I've worked with athletes that have marital problems, financial issues, have suffered loss, have been abused, anxiety, depression. I have athletes that have panic attacks before a competition. I worked with athletes that throw up before a competition, hmm. you know, breathing and visualization is not going to do much good on things that severe. So you've got to, you've got to go a lot deeper and you got to have the training and the tools to do that. So that's a pre, pre a requirement to come into my practice because early on I brought people in that had a master's degree in sports psychology and they were great but they had to refer out the cases when, when things got tough, they had to refer them to someone who was a licensed mental health provider. So they got them, got, got them going. And then all of a sudden an anxiety disorder or mutilating or eating disorders or whatever. We don't, I'm not an expert in eating disorders, So I refer that out, but yeah. you get my point. They reached a point where they just couldn't help them and they had to refer them out to a mental health professional. So now everyone in my practice is a licensed mental health professional I love that, that specializes in performance. It's a beautiful combination. Yeah. yeah. I, I ran into awesome. that same problem. I was, uh, when I was trying, trying to, I didn't really know if I wanted to do pole vault anymore and which is like the hardest breakup of my life, you know, and it, and it, yeah, yeah it just kind of tore me apart because it was like, a, I really like it, but I don't like putting in all this time anymore and it's destroying my body. And, you know, you turn 30 and you start to go, holy crap, people have 401ks and kids and a life and I'm still playing pole vault, you know, <laughs> you start to develop all these things. But the, uh, I, I reached out to the USATF sports psychologist and she referred me to somebody in the cities here and exactly what came up with you. She was just giving me visual, visualization types things. And like part of my master's degree was in sports psychology too. So like not an expert by any means, but at least I took seven classes so i knew the basics of it and it was like i already know all this stuff i know how to goal set you know i know how to do all this stuff and not once did she ask if i even wanted to do the sport anymore it was always how to keep me in it how to keep me going how and looking back and i remember wishing i just wish you would add give me permission to stop doing it you know mm -hmm. and I, that would have fixed i it would have gave me so much relief if if it went a step deeper than that than just yeah and so well, i have I have parents call me sometimes and my son or daughter's in gymnastics or swimming or diving or try whatever it is. And they want to quit. Would you help them keep going? And I said, I'll help them make the right decision. Yeah. I love that. I can't, I'm not going to, I'm not going to guarantee you that I'm going to start seeing your son or daughter and by God, I'm going to make them stay in track and field or swimming or diving. And, and we get through it. And usually most of the time they want to quit is they don't have the skill set to handle what they're facing. Okay. They don't know how to handle performance anxiety or perfectionism or comparing themselves to their other friends that are getting college scholarship offers or uh, a hostile coach. They don't have the tools to handle that. So when I teach them the tools to handle that, they go, God, it's fun again. I want to keep going. And then some go, I still want to step away, but they're stepping away for the right reasons. Yeah. So if you were to create like a, a, a toolbox, what, what would you consider the basic needs for like, what would you wish every athlete came into sports with? Like if it's you, a book, man. yeah, it's a book. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you wrote it uh, probably, right? <laughs> well, let me think about that. That's a really good question. Um, I think. Like you're making a performance cake. <laughs> you know, I'm going to. I think I should just I'll get to start writing notes here. <laughs> I think mindfulness and self-awareness is huge. Do you start with that then? Usually. I don't know that I would start with it, but it's the first thing that popped up okay. in my mind. Uh, so many athletes I work with don't listen to their bodies. Like, for example, I had a gymnast who had thrown up every meet for three years. And I saw her one session and we started talking about the language of her body and learning to interpret that language. And what was her stomach trying to tell her? And second session, she goes, I figured something out. And I said, what? And she says, my stomach is my friend. And I said, what do you mean? And she says, it's telling me I'm focused on the wrong things. By our third session, she did a whole competition, almost finished with floor, ran off the floor to throw up, but she didn't. And by the fourth session, she, she did a whole meet without throwing up. Wow. So mindfulness, self-awareness, listening to our bodies would be in there. I, I teach a concept called tank filling, which means doing meaningful activities away from your sport that bring mental and emotional energy into the system. How do you create awareness uh, for what fills your bucket versus just doing things that you, you might have try things, Okay, you know, like on this screen right here is a picture of an amazing sunset and we took the picture, you know, so me and water, me and music, me and cooking, uh, walking my dog, playing catch with my dog, sitting in the back by the fire pit with friends, a live music, which I haven't been able to do for a long time. Uh, I have one Olympic athlete that every now and then she'll send me a, a picture of a cooling tray of oatmeal raisin cookies or blueberry scones. And hers is buying all the ingredients from scratch and, and baking. Yeah. You know, so it's, you know, too many athletes that I see get up in the morning they train, they go to school or they train and work or whatever it is. They train in the afternoons, they go home and they do homework or they eat and they go to bed and they're exhausted and they're up late and they're sleep deprived. And I'll say, well, you know, what do you do to fill your tank up? And they go, I take naps. Like I have a really cool story about a, a, a college swimmer that I worked with. And I asked her that question, you know, what do you do to fill your tank up? And she goes, I take naps. And I just kind of looked at her, you know, I didn't say anything. And she goes, well, what else is there? You know, she got kind of defensive and we started talking about these activities. So a couple of weeks later, I get this video and a text message with a video. Hi, Mr. Andrews, we're going to so-and-so's house for the weekend to fill our tanks up. And what they did was they stood up, they stayed up late at night baking and they did a movie night with popcorn and blankets. And these are four college girls that just went away to one girl's back home and her parents took care of them and they, they had a blast. And uh, she said that was a game changer for her, learning how to recharge her batteries. I always say, you, you know, you plug your phone in every night, right? Right. You know, why not do things to recharge your batteries? And it helps with burnout. It helps with resiliency. Athletes learn faster. They're more coachable. They suffer fewer injuries. They're more malleable. They're more resilient. There's all kinds of research around it that says, if you understand the concept of tank filling, you get all these benefits. It prolongs careers. Hmm. Is that how you so, help 
people find those things? I was one of those athletes that sounded like your swimmer, which was like, if you told me to eat cardboard and that was going to make me a better pole vaulter, I'd probably eat cardboard, you know, <laughs> I'd have it for every meal. And, and, uh, at the time it was like, well, if I'm not doing all these other things and I go do something fun, it's taking away from the training, which is not like I've, I've learned later now that that's, was a huge mental trap and probably helped, mm. you know, end my career. So how do you, how do you help people have, give themselves permission to have fun, <laughs> fill their tank? Well, they got to have a parents and coaches that buy into it too, because, okay. well, you know, let's look at gymnastics. You know, that was the, if you're not in the gym, seven, eight, nine hours a day, you're not going to get better and you're not going to become an Olympic gymnast and, I don't agree to that. I don't agree with that at all. You can get in there and get a lot done in four or five hours. You know, if it's focused, intentional practice, you know, you're present, you can get a lot done. And, um, but you have to have a coach that says it's like, I'll give you an example. I had a, a, this girl was a really good pitcher in high school softball. Right. And she was playing fall ball and she had, she had uh, tournaments every weekend through, through Thanksgiving. And, I, and her homecoming was coming up. And I said, get out your calendar. She goes, what? I said, get out your phone, get out your calendar. I said, mark that weekend out. You have a boyfriend? Yeah, you and your boyfriend are going to homecoming. I can't do that. I said, yes, you can. Text your coach and tell him you're not going to be at that weekend. And tell your parents you're not going to be at that weekend. And she did. And she went to homecoming. They went out to eat and she got to dress up and she had the, the whole weekend. Friends got together and partied and hung out. And she texted me that, mo- that next Monday and she said, that's the most fun I've had in years. And I feel so much better because she, she had a college scholarship. She went off to play D1 the college softball and she was ready to quit because she was just so fried. Yeah. But she had a coach and she had parents that said, yeah, we'll support that. Hmm. I had a- Instead of, well, you can just sit the bench now or why don't, why don't you just quit? We don't need you because you're not committed to the team. That's BS, you know? Yeah, they're, that's, they're sliding down still trying to climb up, you know, that's what, like, I've been burnt out too. That's what that, to me, that's what that feels like where no matter what you do. Yeah. And what helped tweak my brain on that, um, I had a coach, Car- Caroline White at the University of Minnesota pole vault coach. So I was writing my own training because I had a master's degree in all this stuff. I can, I can write my own training, which I had probably another problem too, right? <laughs> you know, guy obsessed with training, writing his own training. And then, but Caroline was my pole vault coach. So she, one day she saw this happening and she just goes, you kind of like what you said, you need to go out and have some fun. Go take your, my wife, now my girlfriend, go take her on a date and go, go do this, go see a show. You like stand up, go see a stand up show. And that's your training for the, for that day. And so then when I started looking at filling my tank or this fun stuff as training, and then once I believed her, you know, and tried it once or twice and had the trust with, with the coach <clears throat> to try it and saw that it was actually helping my performances, it was like, oh, that's, that's where that tweak in my brain started going. It's, oh, this, this is mm-hmm. training. This is helping a whole bunch. But, um, I was, so the Rio Olympics, I had an athlete that I worked with that won a gold medal. And they stayed up late and did the Bob Costas interview and other interviews and got back to the Olympic village at like two in the morning and had to get up early the next morning for prelims on another event. And they qualified to the finals again, but they didn't, they didn't perform as well. They were, they were frustrated and disappointed and they couldn't get hold of me for whatever reason, you know? And so their mother texts me and says, so-and-so 
stayed up late. They're tired. They made it to finals, but they're, they're not, you know, what do they do? What do they do? And I said, tell her she needs to fill her tank up. She'll know what to do. So she had interviews scheduled that day. She canceled all the interviews, sat in her room at the Olympic village and took a nap and she listened to music and she journaled and she did some artwork and she prayed some and she went out that night. She won another gold medal. Wow. And when she got back home, she called me, she says, we're on, on the way home from the airport. Can we come see you? And I said, yeah, I had the morning off. I was at the office just taking care of stuff. Her and her mother come in the door and we just stand in the door holding each other crying. And it was just such a beautiful moment. And she said, that did it. She had two golds and two silvers at Olympics. Wow. And she said, keeping my tank filled, to, to keep, keeping my tank filled up during the Olympics was a game changer for her. Hmm. That's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it really was. So with like, awareness and mindfulness, tank filling, was, was there anything else that you would, uh, as, a, as a base level athlete, you'd want these um, people to have? I think it's real important to not, to don't focus on outcomes, but be present, you know, kind of overused term, but be in the moment. You know, I see it with pole vaulters. I got, I have to clear this height. I have to clear this height Yeah. or uh, swimmers. I have to drop time. I have to drop time or I have to jump this high or run this fast or score this many points. And I've had so many athletes where I say, don't swim, but don't go, don't look at the clock, you know, jump, but don't worry about the height. You know, and lo and behold, they go, I dropped time in four events this weekend. Right. <laughs> and so uh, it's that it's that kind of overused, corny, you know, be in the journey. Don't focus too much on the destination, because I always say that your mind and your body have to be in the same place. And if your mind's way out there ahead of you at the end of the meet or the end of the competition, and it's not it's not in the same place as your body, you're not going to reach your full potential. There's mm-hmm. a disconnect. Yeah. And so I do a lot of work with athletes of keeping them present in the moment. I, ha- I teach them some counting exercises that we do and a little eye triangle exercise that we do that stops the overthinking and calms everything down and brings them into the present. We do a lot of work with uh, breathing before a run down the runway or starting a gymnastics routine or getting in the blocks for track and field or, or high jump where, you know, we call it getting centered. There's a concept that we use called being centered where physically, mentally, emotionally, even spiritually, you're, you're all the energy is moving in the same direction. I think that's another important principle that we have to, we have to add to this list of you, you have to have all your resources moving in the right direction. You know, performance is never like, you know, who Jonathan Horton is the gymnast. Yeah. Yep. I was talking to, to Jonathan at a, a men's team camp back in 2011 or 12 before the London Olympics. And he goes, you know, Robert, at this stage of the game, my gymnastics is, is mostly mental and emotional. My body knows what to do. It's about getting in the right place mentally and emotionally to allow that talent to come through. And he wow. was a master at that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so getting, I call it getting all your resources moving in the right direction towards the goal that's physical, mental and emotional. When I say spiritual, I mean, your passion and your connection to your sport and your confidence and belief in yourself. When you get all that aligned, that's when the real magic starts happening for me. Can you share some techniques or tools to be able to, you know, get those things in line or, or get into the moment, especially with pole vaulters, you know, Don Hood told me one time that pole vaults 80% mental and the rest is in your head. You know, it's kind of what you're talking about right now. Right now. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's almost like you stole it from Yogi Bear or something, <laughs> but, but yeah. So, well, it's, um, 
there's a lot of factors. I mean, where would I want to start with this? Well, like, the, how does that triangle thing work exactly? If, like, I'm a future person, I catch myself in the future all the time. I rarely spend time mm-hmm. in the past. And, like, things I've found that have been helpful is, like, the mindfulness type techniques. You know, I, mm-hmm. I tried Zen Buddhism for a whole year where I was just, I, I gave 100% of it. Just, you know, you see a guy on top of a mountain in a temple and he looks pretty peaceful and happy. You're like, I'm going to try what he's having, <laughs> you know, kind of a thing. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Bringing bringing my attention to the body or one of my senses has always been very helpful. Like sounds have always been really helpful for me because, you know, especially at my house, there's a bunch of birds and you never know where they're coming. So you just have to be, it makes me be present to the point where it kind of pulls me back in line, as you're saying. And then the rest of my day, I always feel like I have space between me and my thoughts or emotions or the, mm-hmm. or the rest of, th- or the rest of things. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah what, that's cool. Yeah, so tech techniques like does it that triangle idea you were saying with your eyes do some the similar type of thing then? Well, it's like do you ever overthink? Oh yeah, I'm definitely. Oh yeah, if you're yeah. in the future, you overthink yeah. a lot, right? Yeah, I'm doing it right yeah. now. <laughs> so, so if you like, if you're one of those people, the night before a competition, you just lay in bed and you can't go to sleep you know, because your mind's racing, what if, and I have to, and so-and-so is going to be there. And, and they did a PR last week and did a, you know, all these racing thoughts. And to circle back to my days in the oil and gas business, I used to drive up to East Texas. And by the time I got up there, I'd be exhausted because I was thinking <clears throat> so many anxiety producing thoughts. My hands were tight on the wheel and it was a three hour drive or so. And I'd get there and I'd just be exhausted. And then I did this workshop and I was pretty blessed to come in touch with some pretty brilliant people back in the eighties. And, and this guy said, how many overthinkers in the audience? And everybody raised their hands, you know? And, and so he taught this little eye triangle exercise. And so the way you use it is you think about the thought, right? Yep. What if I lose the no height, you know, whatever it is, you look up and think, and then you look down to the left and listen to a sound, the room, like my fan in this room. And then down and to the right, you feel a feeling in your body, like the pressure of this desk on my hand, straight ahead. And I can text this to you later if you want. Yeah. But it's up and think, left and listen, right and feel. And Sean, every time I do that, everything in the room, the colors get more vivid, everything brightens up. But I've been doing it for 30 years. And what I found was over time, that mind chatter just got quieter and quieter and quieter. And I had a girl that was on the uh, Canadian world Olympic teams in gymnastics and she would salute the judges. And then she'd go. (laughs) And her coach said she had ADD and her coach said, she locked in and she got a lot better after we started implementing techniques like that. And so what happens is when we overthink certain switches in the brain turn off and the brain just rotates, ruminates, we call it on these thoughts. And so up and thinking turns certain switches back on again, looking down and to the left and listening turns other switches back on again. And then down to the right fires other switches and then the brain can move forward again. So I could wake up at night at four 30 and go, God, I got to do this and this. And I've got this whole, all these scenarios going on in my mind and I'll just stop and breathe about into the count of four, exhale to the count of five. And I really breathe for my, my lungs go up towards my throat and down towards my belly button. So my, my diaphragm is going down. I'm really expanding my lungs into the count of four, exhale to the count of five. And I'll do that for four or five breaths. And then I do my eye triangle. And then I start this 
process where I start counting backwards from 21 to zero. Hmm. And every time I have an intrusive thought, I start over again. 21, 20, 19. I need to take Lexi for a walk. 21, 20, <laughs> 19. That's my dog, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and Sean, I've trained myself to where in two or three tries, I can get to zero and then I can stay there for 20 minutes. And it's the most peaceful meditative place. And I've been able to do that for about 30 years. Hmm. And my wife was like, how do you take these 20 minute naps? You know, well, I just go in there and I breathe, do a couple of eye triangles. It takes me about three tries to get to zero. And it's the most peaceful, quiet place. I could set a timer on my phone for 21 minutes hmm. and go through that. And then all of a sudden I'll just kind of shake and come out of it. And I look and there will be like 30 seconds left on the timer. And it feels like I've had a four hour nap. I'll do it between sessions. Wow. Yeah. So I'll text you these, you know, if you want them, I'll send them to you, but they're, they work and I teach them to athletes. And so what we're working on is for a pole vaulter, if you're, if your pressure level is at an eight, nine or a 10, and you need to be at a five or six, you got to bring that intensity down. You got to bring that, that adrenaline down. You've got to stop the overthinking. You've got to stop comparing yourself to other athletes. And so we, if they're sitting there waiting for jumps, you know, they're doing mindful exercises to help them get present. And as they move closer and closer, you know, fourth up, third up on deck on the runway, all they need to do is take one breath and there they go, hmm. you know, ready to roll. So now that we're talking about pole vaulters, do you use these same techniques where people are running with, or I get the most emails I get are how to invert and, and I, and running through, what do I do? I've been running through or it's called the yips in pole vault. I've got the yips. I can't take a jump up. So do you use those same type of types of things for, for running through, or do you have any tricks or tools to help these pole vaulters out? So I see, Yips in pole vaulting, yips with golfers, baseball players that, that can't throw to first base, can't throw a strike. They throw the ball into the dug, into the, the net behind. Um, I see gymnasts that can't do backward tumbling or backward skills on gymnasts, cheerleaders that can't do back tucks. Uh, you know, it's, it shows up. I've had a basketball player that his brain wouldn't let him shoot because he was afraid he would miss. It's always stress-related. Okay. And so the first place I look are any injuries. So if I'm working with the pole vaulter and they have the yips, I say, you had any injuries? Well, yeah, I had a really bad broken pole incident where I landed on my head or I broke my ankle or tore my ACL. And since then, well, uh, so we look at injuries and then we look at relationships with parents. We look at relationships with coaches. We look at how you doing managing your distractions in your life. Because what happens, you know, if, if this is a scale right here, you're jumping fine this way, right? You keep adding stress onto the scale. Eventually the scale tips and the brain says there's too much going on up there and it's not safe for you to do this. So I'm going to have you run through because if you go up, you might get hurt. That's my interpretation of it. And I've worked with a lot of, a lot of these athletes that have yips and, and we seem to get, we seem to be very successful of, of helping them, but we have to, you know, you got to be open to taking a really good deep look at your life. You know, it's not a big, you're not going to breathe your way through it. And you're not going to no, visualize right. your way through it because there's a part of the brain that's trying to keep them safe and keep them from getting hurt. You know, reason never overrules emotion <laughs> and a traumatic experience like 
hurting your knee in the box or breaking an ankle in the box or a pole breaking. I've never done it, but that's got to be terrifying. So your, your limbic system in your brain lights up and goes, uh-uh, this ain't going to happen again. So we resolve the trauma from an injury. We manage stress and distractions. We look at relationships with parents, coaches, boyfriends, girlfriends. It could be a compilation of you know, I've worked with Olympic hopefuls who hold down two or three jobs and train. It could be a financial stressor. You know, I had one college, one girl was a uh, college gymnastics hopeful who couldn't do anything backwards on floor or beam. Hmm. And so we, we started working through her stress list. She was, hadn't taken her ACT, SAT. She was behind in her essays for her college application. She hadn't completed college applications. She was behind in her schoolwork, and she had a teammate that every time it was time to go to bars, her teammate hit her grips. She snuck over to her bag and hit her grips under the, under the mats. Well, she, could, she started doing, completing her essays. She took the SAT, ACT. She got caught up in her schoolwork. She manages all this. Okay, now we got to tackle the teammate that's messing with you. Well, she'll get in trouble. I said, well, what does your coach do when he can't find your grips? He makes me do conditioning. I said, so she went and talked to the coach about it. And the coach was like, why didn't you tell me? Hmm. So the coach kicked the other girl out of the gym for a week and said, when you can be a better teammate, come back. So we resolve all these stressors. And I get this video of her doing her series on beam and tumbling on floor. So we, we got rid of the stress and her brain goes, thank you very much. Okay, now go do what you love to do. Hmm. And that's that's pretty successful. Just reducing stress is sometimes all you it need to do. It can be, but yeah. you also have to look at, like, every pole vaulter that, that has run-throughs or yips, if you ask them, there's usually a certain feeling in their body. Right, yeah. Like when they grip a bigger pole, that sends a signal to their brain, or they have a knot in my stomach or a tightness in my chest. And if you ask them, if we look at pressure and intensity on a scale from zero to 10, where are you? Oh my gosh, I'm at a nine. Right. Where do you need to be? Like a five, you know, pole vaulters are pretty aggressive, five yeah. or six. But if there's that big difference, you know, why even go when you're at a nine? Because we know what's going to happen. Right. So we work with tools and concepts and techniques to bring that pressure, that adrenaline down and slide back into that zone before they run down the runway and then they have more success that way. So there's kind of multiple steps to it. Yeah. We look at stress, but there's also some sports psychology tools and concepts that they need to use. Um, like I said earlier, you know, as you get closer and closer to jumping, bring your focus in and then get into that sweet spot, you know, the right amount of stimulation and adrenaline to where your mind and body will, will react or respond remarkably to that. And, most of the time when they learn how to calm their stressors down, work through traumas from injuries, things like that. And then we call it getting centered before they jump. That means being in the right place, physically, mentally, emotionally, the brain says, thank you very much. Go for it. And they start, they start jumping. Now the problem can be, I'll get an email from a parent or an athlete and they'll say, well, I've got the yips. I've got this mental block. How long has it been going on? Oh, three years, four years. Well, that neurological imprinting has been getting, I call it the Grand Canyon. You know, you've been, yeah. you've been eroding this neurological imprint in your brain and your nervous system for three or four years. Sometimes those are very difficult cases to, to help right. because the, the imprinting is just so. It's deep. It's yeah. So, I, I live deep. in Minnesota. Yeah. I think of it like sledding down this hill, right? You, you said Grand Canyon, the, 
kind of like the longer you sled down that hill over and over again, the deeper that's going to get. Right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So if I would imagine like if you have a, a snow, you know, that, you know, makes everything even, you know, <laughs> no matter how deep that groove is, you're going to have to do a lot of passes over it. Am I, am I kind of on the right track there with that analogy? Yeah, you're on the right track. Yeah. Or if you're, if you're going to make the run down the mountain and you want to go this way and you get anywhere close to that yep. groove, you're in it. Boom, yeah. off you go. And that can start with, oh my gosh, a bigger pole. Yeah. And there's some kind of reaction that goes on in the brain and the nervous system about that or um, uh, going up to a higher height. You know, like I had a girl, uh, she, she won the Texas state championship in pole vault. She holds the A&M was one of the, I worked with the last three record holders at, at Texas A&M university, awesome. you know, going back over the years. And I was at the state meet when this girl won the high school state meet. And there was a girl from an Austin high school. I thought, God almighty, there's, there's no way she's going to beat this girl today. This girl was just cranking it out, man, just blowing up over the, over yeah. the bar. It was awesome to watch. And the girl that I worked with was, was doing good, but she just didn't have that. This girl was committed to her jumps. It was really cool to see. Mm-hmm. They got up to 13 feet, and I saw the girl that I was working with and the other girl doing this, <laughs> three and three and out. Yeah. And the girl that I worked with cleared 13 and then 13, two and a half. I think she missed a 13, four, but she ended up going to A&M. And I think she jumped like 14, four up there something wow. like that. And, but what I noticed was when the bar got to a certain height, that girl that was so confident, everything changed. Yeah. Because she didn't have the tools to handle that change in perception. You know, I always say that pressure changes with changes in our perception about things, our attitude about things. So when they got to 13, something clicked in her brain and she was not the same jumper. Yeah. Well, that's why I was asking about this toolbox because it's when, when you talk to coaches and I still run into it quite a bit, it's almost, it's almost non-existent. The the psychological side of the sport that they're, they're coaching. It's almost always, technical or do physiological more. Do, more. do more. Yeah. And, and so I've never even thought about the stressors from that. What I get a lot of is gaps in poles, especially with high school kids, you know, mm-hmm. and that's what you're talking about, having to go up a bigger pole and you're like, Oh, that's like going up four poles, you know, and you try and tell them and try that's and a help. Big jump, that's yeah. a huge jump. Yeah. Just and how it feels, but stiffness and everything, it's huge. Yeah. And then knowing it's that big, too or and it's unsafe you know i like to do everything in five pound increments or a handhold at a time maybe even an inch at a time (laughs) but they can't carry eight or ten poles to a meet you know in high school right yeah there's that and most most schools you know maybe besides california and texas high schools they don't have a good pole line ever i get a lot of emails that are like we have four poles (laughs) for for 12 for 12 kids what are we going to do like i think you're going to be straight polling for a while until you can afford some new poles you know so but um yeah from so from from the yips uh say an athlete comes into you how do you start talking to them what's that first conversation like where where you're trying to understand their needs like what's that process like um i do it i call it an athlete's assessment okay and we look at when you're jumping really well, what things are like. We, we have them write it out. I'm confident. I'm smiling. I'm having fun. My body's relaxed. Uh, I have a really good feel. My timing's right. My steps are on. 
okay, let's take a breath. If they're in my office, I have them move to a completely different chair in the office to change perspective. Now let's write out what things are like when you're struggling. I'm tense. I'm tight. Uh, the pole feels different in my hands. I've got a knot in my stomach. It's harder to breathe. I'm worried about disappointing my coach or my parents, you know, whatever that is. Okay. What are the triggers? So, do what you, are the things? so are you setting up an ideal situation? Like we want to get back to here. Here's where you are. And then you're creating two points. It changes your perspective. Right. Yeah. yeah there's two okay. different athletes. There's one like that girl at that state meet. There was this athlete who was just warm ups, no pressure. Amazing. Right? Yeah. She was amazing. Bar goes to 13. That was her trigger Threw something off. Okay. And her attempts at 13 were nothing compared to where they were at lower heights. So is that, that's where that awareness comes from? I'm sorry, I keep cutting yeah, you off. I apologize. Yeah, we're creating a state of awareness, a change in perspective that if you're healthy, your talent to jump a high height is always present, right? Right. Doesn't that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm just making sure I can understand them. No, what, and what I appreciate saying. that you yeah. want clarity because it, it's a, it's a new concept to a lot of people. Right. But, but if you're, if you're, if your physical strength, agility, coordination, power, balance, ability to, 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 to move up and, and con- convert energy from the run through the pole and the jump, it, all that's physical. You're right. So that, that talent is always present, right? Yep. Then why do we have two different athletes? Yeah. Hmm. That's the question. So we do an athlete's assessment. Describe yourself at your best. Describe yourself when you're struggling. Now, what are the triggers going up a height? Bigger pole. Uh, the, the guy or the girl in front of me cleared a height by this much and it, it freaked me out a little bit. Or I looked at my parents and they're frowning at me in the stands. Or uh, it's raining. Or a big one with pole vaulters, the wind. Yeah. You know? <laughs> the wind is coming straight yeah. at me. Yeah. You know? So you have to identify what your triggers are. What are the things that set you off? There's that mindfulness piece. God, I didn't think about that. And then the fourth question is, how do you know things are changing? You know, what are the warning signs that let you know things are changing? I start biting my nails. My chest gets tight. Uh, uh, I've worked with gymnasts who fix their hair nine times before they do vault or something like that, you know, or uh, I had one girl who did this. Stuck her, stuck her tongue out of the left side of her mouth. Another one did this. And they don't even know that this has meaning. And what it means is pressure's building or dropping and you're moving out of that peak performance zone. So we, uh, when I work with performance, I always do an assessment to make them aware that if my stomach's tight and I can't breathe and I'm biting my nails and I'm fixing my hair and I'm at a nine and I need to be at a five, why even jump? Hmm. We've got to calm that down and get that best athlete gripping the pole again. We got to get that best athlete saluting a judge before gymnastics, we got to be, we have to get a best athlete in that best athlete in the blocks to run the hundred or the 400 hurdles or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, I've taught this to green berets and Navy seals, you know, and it's about getting that best sniper or that best, that best guy in the boat or whatever it is present in that moment consistently, no matter what happens. The Navy seals, you know, they lose a guy on the line, a guy gets wounded or something happens. They can't tend to him. Right. They got to keep the gun on the line. They call it, you know, so it's about learning how to 
I don't want to say discipline. It's because it's not, it's about, it's, it becomes second nature over time that you just know how to get to that place. I have a guy that's on the USA fencing team. I worked with since, since he was 14, he's 24 now. Hmm. And when I first taught him all this, he goes, golly, I got to check my mindset. I got to work with my breathing. I got to get in my zone. And he's all this stuff. I got to manage my distractions. And he comes back a few weeks later and he goes, I got it. I said, what do you mean? He goes, I can do it all in one breath now. Hmm. He says, I fence out a point. I go back to the end of the strip. <sighs> Deep centering breath. Execute the next point. Reset. Execute the next point. Reset. Execute the next point. Reset. So you're creating, you a, new, you're creating a new groove, essentially. A, a more healthier. And getting back to that place. That, yeah. Instead of that instead negative of groove you were talking about falling into, it's like creating this healthier groove. It's, where new, you can, it's literally a new neurological imprint. Right. Or sometimes it's not new. Sometimes it's been there. Just connecting to it again. But an injury created mm. a new pathway or an abusive coach or parent teammate created a new pathway or uh, the pressures of comparing yourself to others or they're getting a scholarship offer and I'm not. It, it's it's all about neurological imprinting in the brain and then how the body responds to that. Hmm. You know, do you want to create, do you want to keep going down the same snow path? Do you want to keep going down the same uh, river over and over again? Or do you want to create, create new pathways in your brain and your nervous system and your body that can in most instances take you light years further than you ever think you ever think you'd want to go. And this is all in Simone Biles' book, but when I started working with her, guess what her goal was? gold medals i would imagine I, no, I don't know make the u.s national team oh really mm -hmm. huh you think she went beyond that i think bit. i think so <laughs> <laughs> wow yeah so she when she got her mind and body in the right place and got into that zone and really started enjoying gymnastics more boom she went from the time i started working with her when in 2013 until, I, until the Rio Olympics, she never lost a meet. Hmm. She was undefeated. And I didn't work with her after the Rio Olympics. So I don't, you know, I, I can't tell you. I have ideas about what happened in Tokyo. Yeah. You know, stress. Stress is what happened in Tokyo. Oh, yeah. I mean, she was the face of the Olympics. You know, I mean, how much bigger do you get than that in the Olympics? Gold honor Leo, greatest of all time. Right. Uh, at war with USA Gymnastics over the Larry Nasser abuse stuff. Yeah. Sponsors, expectations of six gold medals, uh, planning her new gymnastics tour. I mean, it doesn't sound about, that stressful. <laughs> you talk about stress, though. Yeah. Adding stress, adding stress, adding stress. And eventually, she couldn't do a vault that she's been able to do for years. Yeah. But and that's. You saw her eyes. Her eyes were like, she didn't know where she was. But that's, that's what I love about the, this story even more, though, is that because she was getting help before, she had that awareness that you've talked about to go, I'm not in a safe place right now and I know what I need. And I, I kept wondering over and over again as I was watching that, like, would she have been able to do that if she wasn't seeing a a therapist or a sports psychologist beforehand well, and that's impossible I, I to answer know. yeah I don't, I don't know either but i i like to imagine that because she had that for, i and i'm speaking from my own personal experiences because i've had some good experiences with some therapists it's like okay i can put this first even though this is the biggest stage and this is um yeah, I mean, what she did was just absolutely incredible. And it still just blows my mind, and no one's ever done anything like that mm -hmm. that I've seen. Yeah. 
Yeah, it blows my mind too. I'm really proud of her. I think it's just absolutely amazing. And you circle back to the 80s. Remember Carrie Strug and the, the broken ankle and she lands the vault and yeah. she's a hero. And Yeah, that's what people really? wanted. Well, that's the yeah. comments. That's what people wanted in a lot of those yeah. negative comments. Yeah. But, but really, a girl's got a broken bone in her foot? Yeah. Go, you got this. You can do this. And she's like, but in that culture, you couldn't have done that. Right. You had to go do that. Or athletes who are terrified of their coach or terrified of their parents. Uh, you know, I've worked with athletes who had a strained ACL. And because they were screamed at and yelled at, they went back onto the field and tore the ACL completely. Wow. Because they didn't know how to say no. Hmm. She said no. And everybody, teammates freaked out. And then they rattled and they brought home a whole hall of medals, you know? Right. I was going to ask you that. That was going to be my next question is what do you tell a, what do you tell a kid like, like that who might be in an, in an environment or a situation where they don't feel like they can speak up about? It's a tough one because I, I get those well, emails I see, every once I sigh in a while. Because I, I see, I, I see that a lot, unfortunately. Same. Yeah. Through emails and a yeah, lot of, a lot of emails lot. on those. Um, I'll give you an example. I had a, I had a gymnast that I worked with who's uh, coach had a pretty derogatory name for her, her group of girls. And, uh, and there was some truth to it because they cut corners and didn't finish their numbers and sets. And, and so from my work, we talked a lot about responsibility and accountability. So she took that in the gym and started holding her teammates accountable and they came around and started finishing sets and numbers and, and, they were in integrity with the assignments and all that. And the coach would come out every day. Oh, it's my lazy group. Oh. And so this girl said, that just bothers me. You know, I said, well, say something about it. But, but I said, you'll feel empowered. It doesn't matter what the coach's reaction to that is. It's, the, it's, it's you having your voice and owning that as a teenage girl. And so she does it. And the coach goes, oh, well, you can just go home and get out of the gym then. Kicked her out of the gym. Wow. And she says, it backfired. I said, I said, what do you mean? He got mad and he kicked me out of the gym. I said, how did it feel to stay? And she said, it, it felt so good. And then I said, well, has anything changed? He goes, yeah, he doesn't call us the lazy group anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a coach, instead of going, you know, you're right. I appreciate you bringing that to my attention. Y'all have changed. He kicks her out of the gym. But she did it anyway. Hmm. Or I've had athletes who their coach finds out they're working with me and they say, uh, and they start challenging the coaches screaming or shaming or, you know, that if you're trying to motivate me, coach, that's not working. And I've actually had coaches, athletes I work with, their coach will say, whoever that man is you, you're working with, I wish you would just get him out of your head because I liked you better before. Which means I like you being afraid of me and being timid right. and afraid to make mistakes. Isn't that just... Isn't that just it's sickening? Yeah, yeah it's, sickening. It, it's it's showing it's showing more about the coach than the athletes or or what you're doing by any stretch of the yeah. imagination. Yeah. But I think it's uncomfortable seeing ugly parts of yourself, and it's almost like that's <laughs> that's, that's what's happening yeah, by standing up to that. Oh yeah, we all have them. And if 100%. you bring it up and look at them, you can change it. But if you if you're in denial or you you want absolute power or control as a coach over an athlete or a parent over an athlete. You're not willing to look at that and change. You know, Sean, I always say it's the three-legged stool. There's the parent, the coach, and the athlete. Okay. And if there's a weakness in any one of those legs of the stool, 
the athlete's not going to reach their full potential. You know, you have a three-legged stool, you go sit on it with a weak leg, what's going to happen? Right. It's going to collapse, right? So what I've done is I got tired of trying to, to deal with toxic sports cultures. Yeah. Now I just empower the athlete and educate the parents. That's, that's what I was asking is, yeah, that seems to be the best way. To, it's hard. You can't pick and your you parents. Know what it, does? <laughs> it, it builds tension. It builds tension within the system. That creates and change. The coach right? is going to change yeah. or they're going to leave or they're going to kick the kid off the team or they're going to blow a gasket and do something for everyone to see, which I've seen happen a lot where a coach after a game takes, takes their team off to the side and screams and yells and humiliates and the parents are hearing it. And they're like, is this what y'all been talking about? And then it, it gets addressed that way. So it eventually it will create change. So it's, it's almost like the very first thing you talked about with me is that vulnerability to be able to be courageous and, and speak how you feel, which mm-hmm. is a scary space to be for, especially a lot of, I would imagine. I mean, I, I put myself back in my high school shoes, but standing up to a coach. Terrifying. Yeah. So terrifying. Yeah. But, but if they, if they submit to that kind of treatment, when their career ends in sports, do you think there's a pretty good chance they're going to attract a boss like that? Oh, for sure. Yeah. A boyfriend, a girlfriend like that? Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, I had a mentor of mine years ago said, we're given stress until we master stress. And he told me that in 1986. And I've lived by that. If something bad is happening, okay, this this is terrible. But But what good can come from this? And how can I grow from this? And how can I master the stress? And then guess what? Here comes the next stress. And that's what growth and expansion is about in sports or life or whatever. So, so this brave girl that says, we're not the lazy team anymore. We're not your lazy group anymore. She grew and she expanded and she faced that stress and he changed. Yeah. And if a coach shuts that down, then they're inhibiting that athlete's ability to have a voice and be vocal and have a sense of pride and build trust in the relationship with the coach and the athlete, the old school, go do ropes, go run, get out of the gym, go home or or worse, get kicked off the team. And there's still far too many old school coaches out there that have absolute power and have to have that absolute power. Do you think it's getting better? I do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The the direction's going in the right, the right way, at least. Big time. Yeah. And the coaches that want to change are, are reading books and taking workshops and talking. And, and the ones that don't are kind of getting sucked down a black hole because I think the change is going to leave them behind. Yeah. I really do. It's a slow process. Yeah. I, but, I, you know, I do hear some wonderful stories of coaches doing amazing things with their athletes. Yeah. I, I feel the same way. I even get these coaches who start coaching pole vault late, late in life, like fifties or sixties, and maybe haven't pole vaulted since high school. And they're like, my coach used to yell at me all the time, but I don't feel like I want to be that kind of coach. It's like, don't be that coach, be coach the way you want. Like, I feel like I'm on a team with this person, you know, like we're almost equals (laughs) in a way, trying just to help them accomplish what they want to accomplish. And to me, that seems like the most healthy way to be a coach is standing next to your athlete, you know, but you know, helping them reach their potential, whether it's on the track or off the track, whatever that may be. But Yeah. And, and to circle all the way back to our Tokyo Olympics mental health conversation, yeah. um, I hope coaches and parents see that they, they're not just impacting their kids' performance, they're impacting their kids' mental health, their athletes' mental health by 
Um, if you if your kid, if your athlete doesn't trust you, if they're afraid of you, if, you know, I was talking to a parent the other day and I said, do you know the difference between guilt and shame? And they go, not really. I said, guilt means I've done something wrong. Shame means that there's something wrong with me. And your coach is repeatedly shaming your daughter. And they were like, and they wrote that down. Guilt is I'm doing something wrong. Shame yeah. is something wrong. So shaming coaches are actually affecting mental health and self-perception and, and belief. And, and it, what it does is in the long run is we see an epidemic. This is crazy. We see an epidemic of athletes that are perfectionists. Right. They're terrified of making mistakes. They're terrified of looking stupid or getting yelled at or being embarrassed or shamed or ridiculed or benched or whatever it is because they make mistakes. And I saw a, an interview with Obama the other day and uh, he said that he wants to create a world where, where kids are free to make mistakes and they know that parents have their backs and will support them through the struggle. Hmm. I thought it was beautiful. Yeah, it is. Huh. So how, how can parents be aware of what's, uh, what, what's always going on at practice? Is it coming through their kids? Is that the only way? Cause you know, yeah, they can't sometimes be they're practice. afraid to say anything. See, that's, this is a tough question right here because yeah. if the kids do say anything and the parents speak up, then what can happen to the kid? Right. It gets worse. You know, they yeah. made me run. They made me run till I throw up or they benched me and I didn't get to play or they lined us up and they didn't call my name up, but they made fun of me and they humiliated me. And then what happens is the parents become the crazy parents. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so yeah. it's a systematic form of abuse where, we're, okay, you, you want to challenge me as a coach, I'm going to take it out on your kid. And if you want to go to another track club or another gymnastics team or swim team, I'm going to call ahead and tell them you're a problem parent. You're a crazy parent. Don't you dare. And I hear that all the time. Yeah. Same here. That's why I brought up the question is it, it, it's awful. (laughs) I'm I'm struggling to find the words only because it's, it's complex and I don't know how, what to tell people all the time, you know, because it, it's the system, but I think I, I do have faith and hope that things are changing. My, my dad's high school, for example, has all the coaches go to a, a mental health um, symposium right before the, the school even starts to try and talk about these things, just to plant a bunch of seeds in these coaches, these coaches heads. And some of those bad coaches quit because they were forced to go to this thing, which is great. There it is right <laughs> there. There it is right they, there. They yeah. got sucked down the black hole that yep. I talked about. Yeah. And the other ones, and I've seen it in my dad because he was old school authoritative, you know, coach. Um, uh, like he was drafted to the Yankees, which is why we're all Yankees fans here, you there know? You so, go. yeah. And, but he called me like six months ago and goes, I used to yell all the time when I was coaching hockey because I was coached that way, you know? And I, don't like doing that. I like coaching more like I coach pole vault and just like, Hey, let's try this. Let's, let's a little more positive, a little more optimistic, a little. And he's like, my heart doesn't get as beat as fast. I don't feel like I'm gonna have a heart attack every time I do this. And for me, it was cool to see that change in, in a person, especially my, my father, you know, who was pushing, push, push, push more and more and more that old school type of coach. And it just gave me hope that people can change. You know, you don't have to just start as a great coach right off the bat. Yeah. And, and 
I think the really cool thing is that you and I are having this conversation. Yeah. And I hope a lot of people hear this. And Agreed. They, they, type, they take the time to listen into this interview and this podcast. To, there's, you know, there's a lot of meat in what we're talking about. There's a lot of substance to this. And, and I've actually had parents say, well, I want my son or daughter to have a tough coach because to make it to D1 college or make it to the Olympics, they have to have a tough coach. And I go, you know what? I said, the group of guys that I grew up with from seventh grade to high school, we won 64 games and lost two. We went to the state semifinals one year. We won the state championship the next. You know how many times I was afraid of my coaches? Zero. Wow. I had knee surgery when I was a sophomore in high school. My position coach was there when I went into surgery. Wow. So 10 years ago, I had knee replacement surgery. And I called him to thank him for being there. Yeah. And I'm crying, you know, I'm really emotional. I said, my parents had gone through a divorce. I didn't have my dad around as much. I said, you were such a coach to me, but you were, you were like a father figure to me. And I'm getting ready to have knee replacement surgery. And I just wanted to tell you, thank you for all those years ago. You're not going to believe what he says. He goes, when's your surgery? November 28th at Methodist hospital. What time? 7 a.m. I'm going to be there for this one too. Wow. <laughs> so they're in there shaving my knee for surgery. And he's, Don Hamilton is next to the bed talking to me. Wow. You got that a was, good one. So that was how many years? That was many years later. Yeah. Wow. wow. Mm-hmm. I, I love that story. It was a beautiful story. It really yeah. is. And he's still like a father to me. I can call him anytime. Yeah. Know? I just talk and how you doing? We hang up. I love you. Love you, Don. You know, beautiful. Wow. I was never afraid of him. I was a good athlete. You know, yeah. I was a hurdler. I was a high jumper. I played football. I could jump through the roof and basketball and never once was I afraid of him. Hmm. And he knew how to get the best out of me. Yeah. And w- w- isn't that what the coach athlete relationship's all about though? Is just creating that connection between two people to well, I in think a common in an goal. ideal world is. In yeah. an ideal world, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> but but obviously, as we've been talking about, it's not, <laughs> not ideal. Yeah. But again, you know, I don't think people would have had this conversation 10 or 20 years ago. You know, the yeah. fact that we are, we're talking about mental health and struggles that athletes had at the Olympic games and good coaching and bad coaching and good parenting and not so good parenting. When I go out and do parent workshops, I, I ask them, are you a, are you a tank filling parent? Are you a tank draining parent? Are you mm-hmm. a tank filling coach? Are you a tank draining coach? And I list examples of what that looks like, wow. you know, and you wouldn't believe the vulnerability of some of these parents. They're like, like I had one guy go, my son gets home from basketball practice and we go out in the driveway and he has to shoot 500 shots. And I said, how long does that take? Uh, hour plus. I said, wow, why? And he goes, what do you mean? Why? He's got to shoot 500 shots to get good. No, he doesn't. And we talk about that and, and parents will stand up and go, my gosh, I'm realizing I've been so hard on my kids, you know? And, and when my son was in high school, he played baseball. He played college baseball. But when he, was, when he was in high school, his catcher, he was a pitcher and a middle infielder, but his catcher was the best high school hitter I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And we were walking out from a game, went to the, I was walking out with him on the bus. And I said, Cole, I said, is it the fact that you're a catcher that makes you such a great hitter? And he goes, that's part of it, Mr. Andrews. But he goes, every day after practice, I get a tee and a bucket of balls and I put the T of what, where my pitch is, my pitch, and I hit 25 balls. And I've trained my – this is a high school kid. Right. I've trained my brain that when I see that pitch come out of that pitcher's hand, everything unloads on it. Hmm. 
Yeah. He didn't need to hit 500 balls. He hit 25 focused and locked in. He is the best high school hitter I've ever seen. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just seems like that quality over quantity type situation. Right. And then when things are in line, the quality is going to be higher, you know, as you were talking about earlier. Yeah. Working. He's efficient. He's present. Hmm. He's seeing that pitch in his mind and he's executing and he's trained his body and his brain. Boom. There's the pitch fire. Yeah. You know, his senior year, he had like 30 doubles, 15 home runs hit 480 or something. Went off and played college baseball, you know? Yeah. Can can I ask you a question about um, like leaving sport? I've seen some pretty horrific stats about depression, anxiety for professional athletes, you know, leaving sports. And I've, and I, I haven't seen numbers for high school or college, but I would imagine they're the same if you dedicate your life to something and then you go to leave and not just your, I, I mean, I, I struggled through that and I talked to mental or I talked to a pole vault, elite pole vaulters every year at the Reno pole vault summit who, you know, they're mm-hmm. done and they just go, I don't know what I'm going to do next. I don't know who I am if I'm not doing this. I don't, I don't know what to do. And then that, de- I, what I always <sighs> wished was that there was somebody who kind of prepped you for that, you know, mm-hmm. that this is what the the stats aren't great. <laughs> you know, this is going to be hard. Yeah. And here's some tools yeah. to help you get through that. It is tough. Well, it's, yeah. it's, it's a, you know, it's, I always say being born is in life is a big transition. And then going <laughs> yeah. off, yeah. You know, if you decide you want to do college sports, that's a huge transition. Yep. And then uh, I've heard a quote that says every athlete retires someday, whether it's you run out of gas or you have an injury or you don't get drafted or nobody picks you up or whatever it is. I saw a, a, a athlete I've worked with since she was in junior high through high school, swimmer, college swimmer, and she's done. Hmm. And she just came in yesterday and wanted to talk about the transition. And she said, I'm lonely. Yeah. You know, I'm used to being around a team. I'm used to this structure and knowing what my day is going to be like and, and the travel and the, com- the camaraderie and, and really pushing myself to be my best. And, and, but the thing that really struck me, she said, I'm lonely, you know? Hmm. And I said that I said, other than being born and leaving, leaving home for college, this is, this is another huge transition in life. But, but that's life. You know, we work our way through transitions and, you know, getting married, having kids, you know, those are, you know, I always say the universe is expanding and we have to keep moving right along with it. If we're not, we create friction and tension. So what we talked about with her was finding channels for her passion, you know, and she says, golly, I teach, I teach swim lessons to these kids at this country club here in Houston. And I just love it, you know, and I need to work. I need to make money, but I I've already found a channel for my passion and I didn't realize how rewarding that is. Is that part of the bucket filling that you like to talk about too? If you well, find it could be like for that. her for sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But you know, there is, there is a natural grieving process that goes along that with, with, with leaving your sport as well. And it's not just the anger, you know, denial. It's not those, you know, they always say grief is like a thumbprint, you know, it's different for everyone. Yeah. And so there is a grieving process. I know when, when my daughter decided she didn't want to play college volleyball, her high school season in in October, when my son didn't get drafted out of college baseball, his season ended, he went to play the Western Canadian league for a summer that ended in August. So in August, boom, he's done October. She's done that next spring when it was volleyball and baseball season. Guess who went into a funk dad. 
you know? Wow. So imagine what the athletes are going through. Yeah. And I think they were both down. I think my daughter was a little bit relieved, but I think my son, God, he had a baseball cap on his whole life, you know? Right. So he had to find a new channel for his passion. Hmm. And he has, you know? And So is that how you help people kind of transition is just finding another place to put that energy you had and i know it's different for everybody it's probably almost impossible to answer because some people might put three hours a day into their sport and some might put their entire day into their sport which kind of creates a whole spectrum of different responses if that's taken away to some well it's some are relieved to be out you know yeah some miss it and some you know some had an injury that, that forced their retirement and like my son he thought he had, he had scouts looking at him for his pitching and he had some shoulder problems his senior year. And then he thought he's going to get to go to Australia and play, which would have been cool. Yeah. And that didn't happen. So he thought he's going to go to Holland and play and that didn't happen. Hmm. And then this group in Canada says, he won't come up to Canada. And he was like, I remember his, his team lost in the conference tournament and all the guys are hugging each other. And he comes over to us and he's crying and he goes, he had a, a, an opportunity to be a graduate assistant and let's go back and get his master's degree and be a graduate assistant. He goes, I don't want to do that. And he's, you know, tears going down his face. And we said, what do you want to do? He goes, I want to go to Canada and play baseball. You know? Hmm. And so we said, go. And it was that and playing in the long Island league in New York, where he said, those were two of the best summers of his life. Wow. And I'm glad he got to have that experience and it helped him say goodbye to the sport. Now he coaches a 16 U team. You know, he dropped his puppy off over here last night. So we get to take care of his puppy while he goes and coaches and his girlfriend's a nurse. She was working nights last night. So, yeah. uh, you know, he's, he's found, he's, he's, I hope he's getting ready to get a job at the VA helping vets. Cause that's where he did his internship. So that coaching a 16 U baseball team, he has meaningful friends in his life. He has a family that loves and supports him, but I do know he went through a bit of a funk when it was over, yeah. you know? So it's, honoring the grief process and then taking the skills and traits and qualities that you acquired as an athlete and channeling those into what's next in your life. And there's a really cool exercise I did with this girl yesterday. I gave her a piece of paper and I want her to on one side, one side of the paper, write my strengths, skills, qualities, attributes. And she writes them all out. I'm a good leader. I'm vocal. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a good at motivating, inspiring people, whatever that is. And then on the other side, you write out what the world needs. And then you draw lines of connection from I'm a good leader. How will that make a difference over here on this side of the page? Hmm. How will being a good teacher, uh, being organized, how will those strengths and qualities and attributes make a difference on this side of the page? So when you're done, you have lines of connection and, and then you take it and you tape it and you put it up on your mirror in your bathroom. You know, when you're in there shaving and brushing your teeth or putting on makeup or whatever you're doing in there, you're glancing at it. And, yeah. and I believe to go way back to the first of our conversation, it broadcasts that information out to the collective unconscious, to the universe, to God, whatever your belief right. system is. Interestingly enough, I did this exercise right before I got the vision about working with injured athletes. Hmm. And it changed my life, you know? It sounds similar to like what some people call a vision board or something like that, right? In a sense. In a sense, yeah. yeah. I, I, I got to thank you so much for having this conversation. It's just, I, it, 
from what I've found in my history, it goes just having the conversation alone just hopefully makes people feel like if they're going through these things, they're not so alone and there's avenues to, to ask for help. And the most scary moments in my life with any form of mental health or leaving sport or whatever it was, just feeling like you were the only one. And I think you opened a lot of doors for a lot of people Good. here. Yeah. I hope so. uh, thank you for having me. Yeah. Can, can I ask you just one more question? I, I ask all my guests this. If, if you had a magic wand, what would you do, whether it's in sports psychology or all of mental health, what would, what would you want to change? Or what well, I do have a magic wand here, so let me get it that way. <laughs> All right. Well, can I get a, can I get, where did you get that thing? I want one of those too. <laughs> I found it at an antique shop. You know? All right. Uh, so this is a great question. Okay. And so I got interviewed by, uh, I think it was International Gymnastics Magazine or Inside Gymnastics. Sorry, I'm real close with some of the writers and owners of those magazines. So yeah. if I mix it up, I'm sorry. But right before the, the London Olympics, they asked me a whole bunch of questions. And one of the questions was, what's your secret to helping athletes prepare for a, a big event like the Olympic Games? I said, I can teach them how to breathe, how to visualize, how to manage distractions and stress. I can do all that, get in their peak performance zone. But the real secret is empowering them to show up authentically. Hmm. And when we can get an athlete to show up authentically and then pair that with talent, that's when the beauty of the sport unfolds. And it's a remarkable process. And I see it all the time. And so my magic wand would be empowering any athlete out there, any coach, parent out there, get all the stuff out of the way, quit pleasing people, quit, quit trying to get everything perfect, quit being say yes when you mean yes, no when you mean no, start showing up authentically. And I have a, it's called an energy effort graph that I use with this core map. It's a personality profile that I use. And the graph shows, it's an energy effort graph and it shows authentic self. And the amount of energy you get from that is enormous. And down here in the bottom, the effort that it takes is very little. And then you move over across the graph to the conditioned self you know, living who every, everyone else wants us to be in our life. You get very little effort for that, and it takes a tremendous amount of energy. And so I'll show that to an athlete. Where are you on this graph? And they're usually always over near that conditioned self, being who parents want me to be, coaches, recruiters, a selection committee with gymnastics or whatever it is. And our work is to get them over to there, to the other side of the graph where they're living authentically, an abundance of energy with very little effort. Wow. What's that graph called? I'm, I need to. I'll send it to you. It's yeah. an energy effort. Graph. It's energy really cool. Effort. Yeah, it comes from the core, core, core multidimensional awareness profile. I use it all the time. It's just an amazing tool for increasing that mindfulness and that self-awareness that we talked about. Yeah. Well, it's interesting as you're saying that, like when I did that year of Zen, the idea was to kill that ego inside of me, which is the you know, like conditioned self or similar to that. Mm -hmm. And what I realized, what I realized for that whole process, was I, I couldn't necessarily, I couldn't kill it. It was part of me and it's going to be there forever. But it mm -hmm. created an appreciation for it because what it was doing was trying to protect me from certain things. And I've yeah. and I learned that some of the things it was trying to protect me from, I didn't need protecting from anymore. And mm -hmm. that helped me get back to that other side. But I mean, we've talked about awareness throughout this entire entire podcast, but for that's been my most helpful thing is looking in and bringing awareness to those things. And 
that's where, that's where my life started to change was when I started doing that instead of trying to look for external things or changing things. Well, taking, don't you think taking personal responsibility is a very powerful thing to do? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And it feels good. <laughs> it does. Yeah. And, and, and I wish we could see more of that in the world these days, you know, and, uh, to me, empathy and compassion and personal responsibility are missing a lot with a lot of people these days. And if we could get back to be more, more compassionate, more empathetic and take more greater responsibility for our lives and how we behave and how we act and man, the world would be just such a different place. Our country would be such a different place. You know, I think that's people a- are so reactive these days. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a perfect way to end it. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Let's do it again sometime. Whew, everybody, I hope you got as much out of that as I did. I, what a great guy. So if you would like to reach out to uh, Robert Andrews, head down into the show notes. There's a link to his um, website down there. Um, go to Amazon or wherever books are sold and get The Champion's Mental Edge. Turning winners into champions. This is a freaking great book. I wish I knew about it sooner. God dang it, I'm in retirement. (laughs) So, um, if you have any ideas for podcasts, let me know. If you want to keep supporting what I'm doing, onewholelifemedia.com. All right. Uh, uh, Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the next one.